as we continue our series on the Ten Commandments. We'll look at Commandment 7 once, once again, looking at some different aspects of this commandment. Before we do so, let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you, God, I praise you for who you are. God, you are a good God. You are a holy God. And as we look at your law, as we look at how it applies to our lives, God, I pray that you change us. Help us to see your beauty. Help us to see our failings so that we might cling to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past couple of weeks have, have been interesting. Uh, interesting for those who kind of grew up in my generation. Um, uh, kind of my generation, there was uh, several, and there are in every generation, but there are several key figures or um, people that others look up to, or we might say uh, Christian celebrities, right? for lack of a better term. Right, so these Christian celebrities, and Christian celebrity actually is a thing um, that seems weird, and it looks weird in person, uh, but it happens. Uh, I remember at, at a conference, and you're at a conference, and I, I'm s- sitting in a seat, and I, I get there early, so I'm up front, and uh, I, I see a lady who's kind of creeping up to the front, and, um, and, and she's looking for signatures and pictures with these pastors, and I'm like, is this actually happening? And then, and then she shows them the phone case and says, I have all your faces on my phone case. Here's just, just, a, just a heads up. Don't do that with Nate and myself. All right, if you have our faces on your phone case, like that devalues your phone. Um, so don't do that. I think I can speak for both of us there. Um, but don't do that. All right? But there are tends to be this idea of putting people on pedestals, and one person who was put on a pedestal real early, um, and, and just tragic, and it relates to what's happening in this commandment. It relates to this commandment, so we, I think it's helpful to address this and just be aware. Um, there was a big movement of kind of purity culture and um, pushing for purity in uh, Christianity, which is a good thing to uh, to wait um, until you're married, and we talked about that last week a little bit. We'll talk about that again this week, um, but a big name associated with that was Joshua Harris. Uh, he wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Right? Um, and at its best, it was, hey, don't just date to date and, and have, be intentional. But at its worst, it was, if you do all these things, then your marriage will succeed. Right? Um, if you make sure that you're not... As long as you follow this pattern, things will go well. Um, a lot of pushback from the book over the years, but just recently uh, he announced last week um, him and his wife were getting a divorce. Uh, this past week uh, he announced this. The information that was left out of our announcement as of his divorce is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. 
Martin Luther said that the entire life of believers should be repentance. There's beauty in that sentiment, regardless of your view of God. I have lived in repentance for several years, repenting of my self-righteousness, my fear-based approach to life, the teaching of my books, my views of women in the church, and my approach to parenting, to name a few. Here it is. But I specifically want to add to this list now. To the LGBTQ community, I want to say that I'm sorry for the views I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church and for the ways that my writing and speaking contributed to the culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. So here's a prominent evangelical leader who was pushed to prominence real early. He wrote his book when he was 24 who is on this other side, this disillusionment, saying he's walking away from the faith and abandoning the biblical sexual ethic. He's not the first, he won't be the last. If we think this can't touch us, we're mistaken. It's important that we understand what Scripture teaches that we take our cues from Scripture, and that we understand what the Bible teaches. That is the most loving thing, regardless of what culture is saying. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 says this, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Last week we looked at the narrow aspect of the seventh commandment. And this week we will expand our vision of what this commandment is about. We have said before that each of these commandments can be viewed as categories for sin that are further developed and elaborated upon as the scripture continues. It's called progressive revelation. We progressively get more and more details throughout the Bible. For the seventh commandment, Leviticus further develops the command. Pastor Nate preached on this a couple weeks ago. And it has echoes throughout scripture. So it has a broad picture of what we should understand when it comes to the teaching of adultery. Last week, again, we looked at some of the, even the negative aspects of don't commit adultery, don't commit sexual sin, but this week we'll look at the positive aspect of how do we champion marriage in an age that's confused about what marriage is. How do we champion marriage in an age that's confused? First, Champion marriage means defining it. Right? Championing marriage means defining it. Some words change in meaning over years. Right? There can be a variety of reasons, such as technological advance. Right? The word tablet can refer to many things. Fifty years ago, they weren't thinking about this. Right? But now we apply that same word to new advances and different things. Some words differ depending on who you're talking to. Think of the word football. Depending on who you're talking to, it might be different. If you say football overseas, many would think you're talking about soccer. If you say football in the U.S., many assume you're talking about American football. Other words, their definition transcends time and transcends cultural differences. Though the word might be different in another language, the usage is the same. Think about rectangle or square. You start to redefine what that is, it loses its meaning. 
Well, we can use the word metaphorically. It means a specific thing. It has a universal definition attached to it. And without the definition, the word doesn't make sense. We're living in a time when the most basic, the most universally agreed upon terms are being challenged. Boy, girl. Mother, father. In a recent article, a journalist argued against using the terms mom and dad, saying we've moved past these terms. Again, unthinkable. So how do we define marriage? How do we understand it? Is it something cultural? Is it something transient? Or is it something bigger? Well, if we look at our Lord, Jesus Christ, he grounds marriage in creation. He grounds marriage in creation. This is not something cultural. This is not something transient. This is something embedded in, the, in creation itself. This is how things were designed. What he says, if you want to flip to Matthew 19 with me, it'll be on the screen as well, Matthew 19, 4 to 6. He answered, he's talking about divorce here, but in, in the midst, his argument is based on something greater. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Have you not heard in the beginning, man and woman, they were designed in such a way that they were to leave father and mother and become one flesh? Again, we live in a, in a culture that can't even make sense of that paragraph. God says, this, this, is, this is what it is. It's grounded in creation itself. This is how things were designed. We talked about last week that woman was taken from man and the uniting of man and woman back together is more of a reunion than a union. They're designed, we're designed for each other. It's how God intended it. Listen to what he says. So they no longer be two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So this is something bigger than us. This is something bigger than a cultural moment. This is grounded in creation itself. And even more than that, it's grounded in the creator, God, who unites man and woman. So Jesus defends marriage by pointing to creation. So how do we define it? Well, look at the First Baptist doctrinal statement. I think that that's pretty good. We believe that marriage is a sacred institution created by God and that the only legitimate marriage sanctioned by God is the joining of one genetic male with, another, with one genetic female in a single, exclusive union. That God intends and commands sexual intimacy to occur only between a genetic male and a genetic female who are married to each other. A man and a woman joined together for the purpose of intimacy, for the purpose of procreation. So Jesus grounds marriage in creation. Next, 
Scripture defines marriage, not culture. There's a danger even in talking about this topic today. It's framed as a new type of civil rights movement. To teach the biblical ethic on marriage and the biblical definition of marriage is framed as the immoral equivalent to being a racist. Christians on this issue are no longer get called um, being stuck up or goody two-shoe, but we're seen as being morally wrong, immoral. A part of the argument is, is that to deny marriage rights is to cause significant harm to someone who identifies as gay. So here lies the problem. Either we will have an issue with the biblical text or an issue with the culture. And it has become an issue and a dividing line for churches today. The United Methodist Church recently voted kind of affirming biblical marriage and then the United Methodist in the U.S. and in Grand Rapids came out saying, no, we're against that. We don't agree with where our denomination is going. It's a dividing line in churches. Pastor Nate helpfully walked through Leviticus and 1 Corinthians text on a Sunday morning sermon a couple weeks ago. He discussed how many use those scriptures to make them say something other than their clear intent. And we can add to them several other scriptures. Several other scriptures that might be squinted at just the right way to make them say what you want them to say. But the intention is obvious. Revisionists come at it from different angles, different approaches, somehow reaching the same conclusion. They start with the conclusion and work their way back. How can I get this to fit the agenda I want it to fit? And Jesus is clear that this is rooted in something more significant. It's rooted in the design of God from the very beginning. The goodness of God's design is what's truly good for every person. That's why Romans tells us not only to be obedient to the sexual ethic ourselves in Romans chapter 1, but also calls us not to approve of others who are walking in these ways. Say God's design is for our good. Could ask the question, what's best for human flourishing? What's best for the good of our neighbors and those around us? Again, this is framed like if you do not support, you're heaping evil upon evil to those around you. But is this true? Maybe the question about what's best for human flourishing and those around us isn't something that we think we need to think about. The Bible's clear, that's enough. While that's true, we need to be careful not to dismiss the beauty of God's design. Sometimes there's a temptation to skim the surface of things that make sense to us today, but then we miss out on gaining the defense of what we need for tomorrow. So is there something greater? Is this actually what's best for people? I I love this. says, compared to children of parents of at least one 
of whom had a gay or lesbian relationship, those reared by their married biological parents were found to have fared better on dozens of indicators and worse on none. This is in the book, What is Marriage? They continued saying that every parenting alternative has been less effective. Any revision of what marriage is has been less effective for children. This is education, well-being, financial status later on. If anyone desires healthy families and flourishing children, the traditional view of marriage is statistically the best option. Now, we can go beyond that. Obviously, we want to know what the Bible says. But even as far as the statistics, is backing up, is affirming what we know it should affirm. Scripture. Now, there are studies that say, no, there's really no difference. There's really no difference. And so, uh, Robert George teaches at Princeton, uh, is one of the authors here in What is Marriage. He actually critiques and shows how a lot of the studies saying there's no difference is based on faulty data. The way that they go about getting the information would never be approved if it were for anything else. The sample size is not great enough. Where they're pulling their data from, the the pockets are all very similar high-class pockets. But it's okay. It's being squeezed in there. and So it's just... uh, Really cool to see uh, kind of of top-of-the-world scholars say, no, actually, people are fudging numbers here. This is is the truth. Uh, They can can deny that, but their studies aren't really accurate. We shouldn't shouldn't support them. Uh, uh, Terrific, uh, terrific book, really going at it from the the angle of natural theology even more than, than Scripture proving that just from nature, uh, we can prove that this is the best way. The biblical evidence, human flourishing, are both on the side of traditional marriage. Well, if this is the case, we might ask a question that is maybe common today. It may be common today because you might have experienced this or you might need to experience this one day. What about this question? Should a Christian attend a gay wedding? Should a Christian attend a gay wedding? We see this a lot in the news as far as somebody baking for a wedding, somebody photography, taking pictures for a wedding. Like, what should we do? What's the biblical approach? I want to look at this in two different ways. Two different ways to be able to frame this question. The first is vocation. Everything that we do, every work that we do, is for God and his glory. As long as this is a lawful job, it matters. And it matters because we're doing it for the Lord. So if we're doing it for the Lord and we're doing it for the good of those we're serving, that impacts what we're talking about here. Think about how many people in Grand Rapids make furniture. Do we make a chair? Because, or do we not make a chair because it might be used in a gay wedding one day? Where's the line? 
We can serve God in whatever we do. But what we need to understand is there are certain vocations that are closer to the action than others. For instance, if you're a private chef at an immoral event, that's much different than if you're a butcher and people are using your meat to make hamburgers at their immoral event. As a private chef, you're a, part, a part of your vocation is having the specific people in mind that you're serving. To do the job well is to do it for those people and for that occasion. It's to do it in such a way as to add positive value to the event itself. And here's where it's helpful when we think about the gay wedding. If you're making a cake, you need to ask the following question. By making it as your vocation, are you celebrating what is taking place? Are you doing it in such a way as to blur the definition of marriage? It's just another wedding cake. Think about it even in, as a photographer, there's two things that you need to consider. And this is for all of us. You need to consider not only your vocation and what you're doing and why you're doing it, but also your presence. You're there at the wedding. And here's something we need to consider in our hyper-individualistic age. Being present at a wedding means something. It means something. I'm a witness to what God is doing right here. Just think about the phrase that sometimes is used, if anyone has an objection, let them speak. As a Christian, you have to speak. You cannot approve of what's going on. It's not best for what them. You believe in God's word and what he's saying. The loving thing is to speak. You can't give approval. You can't say, this is right. I'm going to witness this great union. I understand the difficulty. I understand the hardship, especially family members. But participating in the ceremony is giving meaning and definition to something that's not true. This is not a marriage ceremony. Whatever it might be, that's not what marriage is. Just as we cannot... It would not make any sense to sit and swear in someone to the military who's a pacifist. That doesn't even make sense. To be in the military means certain things. To be in marriage means certain things. This is not what it is. So championing marriage means defining it. Defining it. Next. Championing marriage means countering cheap substitutes. Countering cheap substitutes. So the first error is errors of the world. The second means understanding and countering the counterfeits that creep up within the church. Some of these are obvious. And others need to keep the main things the main things and not get distracted. What are these errors that creep up into the church? Well, here's one. We're married in God's eyes. We're married in God's eyes. 
Kevin DeYoung writes about pastoral problems in the life of John Witherspoon. This is in 1747. William Mitchell and Elizabeth Cochran were rebuked by John Witherspoon, a minister for their irregular marriage. This was a problem in the 18th century Scotland. A couple would clandestinely commit themselves to one another without the approval of their parents and without the blessing and formal ceremony in the church. They just go off in secret, say, hey, we're married, and then engage in sexual intercourse. 1747. Not a new problem. How many times have I heard friends, people in the church, say, well, we're basically married. We're married in God's eyes. It's a phrase used by people who are acting like a married couple, living together, engaged in marital relations, but they're not married. People claim this, at least acknowledge the importance of marriage and how it relates to the acts, but fundamentally misunderstand how marriage is bigger than two people. They're not going through the ceremony, but living as if they did. It's a promise made in secret, and they treat it like a formal covenant. R.C. Sproul says it like this, There's a vast difference between a commitment sealed with a formal document and declared in the presence of witnesses, including family, friends, and authorities of the church and the state, and a whispered, hollow promise breathed in the back seat of a car. There's a big difference. Next, it's my day. The point here is not to be hypocritical, but to recognize that in our own lives, sometimes the temperature starts looking more like the culture around us than the biblical text. I'm going to Pastor Nate talked about when he discussed this topic. Right? We have a tendency, if we are not maintaining the temperature just to become the temperature of whatever's around us. It's my day. That can be a good thing said casually, perhaps. But sometimes it can speak to something deeper. To a very individualistic idea of what marriage is. This is my marriage. This is my day. This is how I want things done. Actually, it's God joining you together. Actually, other people matter. They're there to hold you accountable. In Jewish practice, the entire community was involved. It's God joining people together. It's bigger than the individuals represented. It's them being ushered into something bigger than themselves. A side note, this isn't biblical or not, but this is one reason that I would advocate for traditional vows. Is bigger than us. Other people throughout centuries have said the same language. Next, God created the desire, so it must be good. This is something that Joshua Harris appealed to as he 
left the faith and became disillusioned. There's a push to say that we're sexual creatures and that's how God made us. So living out that is simply stepping into our created identity. Last week we discussed scriptures teaching on lust and the dangers there. Here we want to understand the difference between good gifts and their proper place. This logic is fundamentally skewed. God created us to enjoy and need food, but that doesn't mean that all eating is good. Gluttony is a sin. We need to have categories for the goodness of creation and the sinfulness and the misuse in our own lives. Sex is good in its place, but outside of that, it's wrong. Another issue with this phrase is that it can reduce God's gifts to what we want from them. What we want from them at the moment. The gift is meant for something bigger than our personal pleasure, though. It's something important for us to understand, especially in a porn-addicted culture that makes everything about self and personal pleasure in the moment. When Scripture talks about sex in 1 Corinthians 7, it says something different. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then, come together again, so the saint may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here we see it's not for personal pleasure, but mutual pleasure. It's for the spouse. It's for lasting commitment together. Three lies, three uh, falsehoods. Some are more severe than others. What dangers that we can fall into. Making things all about us in the moment instead of understanding what God intended. Third, champion marriage means helping and supporting couples. Helping and supporting couples. We see it over and over again in Scripture, the importance of encouraging one another, of spurring one another on in good works, of coming alongside others in the faith. While this is a major biblical theme, it can look different in real life. Marriage can become something that's not celebrated, but mourned. Instead of becoming echoes of Jesus in the church, marriage can become self-focused. Just endure through it. We're called to tough it out. I just want to share a, a personal journaling thought from mine. This is from April of, of last year. I hope I'm never a just-you-wait person. Perhaps I am at times. Let me explain. The just-you-wait person is someone who thinks they've been through it all. They attribute the perseverance to themselves and romanticize entire periods of their life. In doing so, they look down on all others who do not exercise the grace that they clearly showed as they went through that stage of life. They didn't exhibit grace, but pridefully remember it that way. To show off their superiority, they downplay the struggles of those they are talking to by referring to uh, their success, not only in that person's situation, but other situations as well. This is where the just you wait starts to be heard. 
To the young married couple who are having a small fight, just you wait until year five, year seven, year ten. Any year counts as long as it's longer than the couple and they had been through it. To the young family who is struggling with their kids, just you wait until elementary, high school, college. Same rules apply. Contrast this with the I've been there person. This is the person who understands the struggles, who empathizes with others. They understand that apart from grace, they don't know where they'd be. The I've been there person enters into the situation, counting their struggles less than those to whom they're talking. Replay the same scenarios. The young couple who has the small fight, I've been there. Let me know if you need anyone to talk to. The young couple who's struggling with their kids, I've been there. I'm here if you need anyone. The first case sees their perseverance as ammo for lifting themselves up, and the second case sees their preservation as an opportunity to enter into the situations of others and be a blessing. I hope I'm never a I've been there person. Or I've just you wait person. I hope I'm a I've been there person. I've been there as a high school student fighting for purity. We've been there as a young couple who have who has young families on one side and singles on the other feeling left out. We've been there as a married couple longing to have kids and wondering why it hasn't happened yet. We've been there as a family with babies and no sleep. Lord, help me remember. Guard me against being a just-you-wait person. Which side do you fall on when it comes to marriage? Do you use past experiences to champion your, yourself or as an opportunity and platform to serve others and come alongside them? I think there are a couple ways that we can support marriage here at First Baptist Church. The first is what we've been discussing, individual support of marriage. Individual support of marriage. And the second is corporate support of marriage. Corporate support of marriage. Whether it is marriage conferences or Sunday school classes, I'm thankful to be a part of a local church that wants to support and lift up marriages at a corporate level. We want to educate and provide opportunities for couples to grow closer together and to the Lord. Individually, this means organically reaching out to other people, building relationships with other couples, lifting up their marriage, supporting them, a couple ways that we have been supported is simply people uh, coming alongside, saying, I know this has been difficult. I know it's been a, a hard week. Let me take your kids off your hands, and, and you guys can uh, just enjoy, enjoy the day and, and, and get things done. We've had a couple, after we had the twins, there was a lady who, who came over to our house and said, I don't care. You're going to feel, feel weirded out about this. I don't care, but I'm going to come over to your house and clean. You're going to sit on your couch and watch me or do whatever you want, but you're not going to clean at all. I'm going to do this for you. Swallow your pride and let it happen. Another lady who came over uh, to be with Ashley and the twins um, during uh, deacons meetings and uh, meetings with with the, the guys in the church, and she'd come over to make sure that Ashley had somebody and she was able to to have the help and support she needed. 
recently, when we, uh, when we moved back here, we, we ran into a, a couple, and you, you always find relationships with people who have multiples. It just, it just happens. Uh, it's like an inside access card to other people who have multiple kids uh, you know, at once. And so we, we ran into people in a parking lot, I think it was a Sam's Club, and they talked about uh, people in their church had, had triplets, and people in the church, this is this is phenomenal. I'm not. Um, they took couples. They they signed up for time shifts to go to their house all throughout the night um, and take care of the kids so that the parents could sleep. Right. That's that's cool. That's a way to support marriage. I'm not saying that we we need to do that or should do that. I'm just saying there's there's so many neat things to be able to come alongside couples, come alongside people to support their marriages and to support their families. What are some natural ways that we can do that? What are some natural ways that you can do that, to come alongside couples and support them? How much different is that than, oh, you think life is hard now, just wait until you get to this age? Really? We need to call good what God has called good. We need to understand his view of marriage. We can't march through all, all the texts here tonight, even talking about gay marriage. I, I do have, if, if you want, you don't need to grab it, right? Um, but on the, the Welcome Center back there, I did a, a paper on, um, on traditional marriage and talking about some of the human flourishing things and different texts. I didn't touch the First Corinthians 7 text that uh, Pastor Nate touched the other day, but it's an 18-page paper if you want to grab it. Uh, it does cover a, a lot of the bases here um, about marriage and its importance. Uh, so feel free to, to grab one of those if you'd like. But we need to understand what marriage is. We need to understand what marriage is based on God's word and what he says, not what the world says. The world says that our definition is of love, well, uh, of marriage, that's not loving. Here's the truth. Our definition of marriage is grounded and was stated by a man who came to this earth. The second person of the Trinity who came to this earth, became man, took on flesh, died in our place. Perfect. he, He doesn't deserve the punishment, but he takes on the punishment on himself so that we might be forgiven. The world says, hey, this sexual ethic that you have, that's unloving. Here's, here's what we need to say. I trust the man on the cross. I trust the man who bled for me. What he says is loving. What he says is the right way, is how we were designed. He knows because he did it. I'm with Jesus. I'm looking to the cross. I'm siding with him for eternity. He gave our life for us, and he loves us. And I'm longing for every person, every person who's struggling with whatever sin they have, to come to his arms, to embrace him and know who he is as their Savior. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you and I praise you for who you are. God, you are a good God. You know what's best for us. Help us to champion what you champion in the pages of of your scripture. Help us to lift it high to show the world how how good it is. God, forgive us for when when we fall into temptation, when we make light and devalue the precious gifts that you've given us in marriage. Help us live in such a way. Help us come alongside 
each other in such a way that your way, God, is attractive to the world around us because of how we embrace it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.